Zoe's here. Zoe's going to come and preach for us. Thank you so much. So good afternoon, everybody. My name's Zoe. I'm an intern here at the church. And I am here to preach our final sermon in our sermon series, Four Gospels, One Jesus. So Four Gospels, One Jesus, what is that? Behind it is the idea of how do you come to really know someone? So um, let's say uh, I have a friend who I just met and they seem quite nice and I, I want to know a bit more about them. I could talk to their mother, I could talk to their sister, I could talk to another one of their friends. Each one of those people would have a slightly different relationship with my friend. They would tell me slightly different stories, but it would all be about the same person. And I think that's what we're doing in this sermon series. We believe in one Jesus, but in each one of the Gospels, we have slightly different aspects of Jesus emphasized to us. So far, we've looked at Matthew's Gospel. We've looked at the way that Je Jesus is emphasized as a teacher. We've looked at Mark's Gospel and the way that Jesus is emphasized as a savior. And we've looked at Luke's gospel and the way that Jesus is emphasized as a healer. In this sermon, I have the enormous privilege and challenge of saying, who is Jesus in the gospel of John? The gospel of John was once described as a river in which uh, children can paddle in, but elephants can wade in. And by that, I think they mean that John's gospel seems quite simple at first, but really it the more you go into it, the deeper and deeper you can go. And so before I start this sort of daunting discussion, let us have a moment in prayer. Father God, I pray that you would be with us today. And I pray that in the words that I speak, you would help us all to come to know your son Jesus better. I pray that you would help us to know you better, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly. Amen. And so, in John's Gospel, we're looking at the fact that Jesus is seen as Lord. Throughout the Gospel of John, the lordship, the power, and the control of Jesus is emphasized. We see this, for example, in the fact that in both Mark's gospel and John's gospel, the Pharisees have a discussion with Jesus about whether or not it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. In Mark's gospel, Jesus responds by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus brings a logical and reasoned argument to the table to respond to the Pharisees. By contrast, in John's gospel, Jesus responds by saying, my father is always at his work, and so too must I. Jesus is, in John's gospel, is making a Christological statement to explain why he heals on the Sabbath. He's saying, just, he's saying, I am God, and God is always at work, and so am I. Another way that John, Jesus is seen to be God in the gospel of John is the use of the I am sayings. In John's gospel, Jesus is well known to respond to a miraculous event with a, a statement, an I am statement, saying, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. 
these I am sayings are making a reference to Exodus when Moses is confronted with the burning bush and the Lord speaks to Moses, telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and set the Israelite people free. Moses says in response to Pharaoh, but who should I say sent me? Who is, who are, what is your name, God? And God responds saying, I am who I am. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, when he responds to these miraculous events with I am saying, is saying that I am the same God that we've seen in the Old Testament. Furthermore, it means for us that when we say, who is God? We can think of Jesus and God in the Gospel of John. We can say that God is, Jesus is, the light of the world. God is, Jesus is, the bread of life. And so we know to those people who are spiritually hungry, to those people who are in the darkness, Jesus has something to offer. We know that Jesus is the door, the way, the truth, and the life. We know that Jesus is the way to salvation. And as we heard in our reading today, we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus in John doesn't just embody a way to salvation, doesn't just embody the answers to our deepest longings. Jesus in John also calls each one of us, cares for each one of us, and goes out to find us. Another way that the godness of Jesus gets emphasized in the Gospel of John is in the prologue as it begins. It begins with the word saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Those are some big words that he starts with. When you go back to the Greek, the, it says, in the beginning, there was the logos. Logos is the Greek word for word, but it kind of means a little bit more than that as well. Logos in Greek thought, which was the context in which this gospel was written, was the sort of unifying principle that was behind all of existence. And so what John is saying is John is saying that this Jesus, this God, was before the world, and this Jesus, this God, is the thing that holds our world together. It says, all things came into being through him, and without him, nothing that came into being would have come into being. And so we see that Jesus was the pre-existent Logos, the thing that holds the world together. We've seen that Jesus is the ultimate expl explanation. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that in true Sunday school fashion, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is the answer to the questions that we ask. When we're lost and when we're alone, and when we cry out to God, we know that on a certain level, Jesus, the great I am, is the answer that we're looking for. Jesus is not just the signpost pointing us to a way of life, but Jesus is that life. We see in the Gospel of John that Jesus is Lord. And I wonder, what does it mean for us to respond to that fact? I think before we think about that, let's look at the ways that people responded to that in the Gospel of John. It says in the Gospel of John that everything that came into being came to being through him. 
He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. It feels like the lordness of Jesus is self-evident, and yet in the Gospel of John, so many people seem to reject it, to be offended by it or confused by it. We see that in Nicodemus, the Pharisee in John 3, who comes at the dead of night. He has all of the knowledge in the world. He's respected, but yet he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. He says to him, you talk about being born again, but how can I? I've already, I'm an old man. How can I come again from my mother's womb? Jesus says to Nicodemus that he kind of writes off Nicodemus a bit, says he won't really get it. And I think that's because Nicodemus is not ready to change his worldview when he's confronted with who Jesus is. By contrast, the very next story that we see in the Gospel of John is the Samaritan woman. In the story of the Samaritan woman, you see a woman who's been shunned by the people she's living by her town because she's had five husbands. She's going to get water at the very hottest time of the day to try to not cross paths with people. And this woman, without probably that much education, not that respected, has a conversation with Jesus, the Lord. And she comes to see what Jesus is talking about. That compels her to go to the town that she came from and say, come and see Jesus. Come and see the man who told me such things about myself. Unlike Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman did come to understand who Jesus was. And so we've seen that it's not just about facts coming to know who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. There's something about how we respond to those facts. And I think that idea of responding to facts is something that we see throughout the gospel. There are two phrases that like really come up a lot as you read the gospel of John over and over again. And those are come and see and follow me. The Samaritan woman, when she goes to the town, doesn't give people facts about why they should believe in Jesus. She just says, come and see. Jesus, when he speaks at the end to Peter, says to Peter, Peter, follow me. There's that sense that in following, in coming and seeing, in having that experience of Jesus, a person only then comes to really know who he is. And so, We've seen in, Jesus, in the Gospel of John that people respond to Jesus along a spectrum. On one hand, we have the Pharisees who are offended by Jesus and strive, want to kill him for his claims to be God. On the other hand, we have the Samaritan woman. We have Peter. People who've heard these claims of Jesus, have come and seen, have followed, and are changed. And in the middle, we have someone like Nicodemus, an interested but skeptical Pharisee who's trying to remain impartial. I think the reason why we have this like spectrum of responses in the Gospel of John is because what Jesus is saying is a bit offensive. Jesus claims to be God. The way, the truth, and the life, the explanatory fact that holds this world together I wonder if it feels like, in saying that Jesus is God, that he is the answer. It's difficult for us, because we have to say that we 
are not the way, the truth, and the life. We do not have those explanatory answers. We cannot be the answers to our own problems. We're saying that we cannot just be harder working people, kinder people, more efficient, more savvy people to get the things we want. And there's something jarring in that. There's something jarring in saying that Jesus is God. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish theologian, talked about this. He felt like the Danish church had lost sight of who Jesus really was. He laments that Jesus, this polemical figure in the Gospel of John, this sign of offense, this object of faith, had just become the most fabulous of all fabulous characters, the divine Mr. Goodman that we just feel quite cozy when we read about. He says there are so many more Christ admirers than Christ followers in this world. And so what does that mean for us? How do we respond to that fact? How do we try to become and continue to be Christ followers rather than Christ admirers? I think someone who can help guide us in this is Peter. I always find great solace in the story of Peter. Peter in the Gospel of John wasn't picked by Jesus. Jesus came and found his brother. And his brother, realizing that Jesus was the Messiah, came after Peter and said, Peter, come join. But even though Peter wasn't picked by Jesus, Peter was exceedingly keen. Peter, uh, when Jesus offers to wash Peter's feet, Peter refuses, says, I will not dishonor you, Jesus. You will not wash my feet. When, Je when he hears Jesus' reasoning, he goes, well, then wash my whole body. Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, I am your number one follower. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You can trust in me, Peter. And sometimes I'm sure many of us have felt like Peter. We've said, we are so keen. We are so excited. And we will do great things, Lord. But then Peter, being a human Peter, as Jesus gets taken away to be crucified, gets a little bit unsure, and he says, no, I never knew Jesus. I didn't know him. He betrays Jesus. And sometimes I feel like we too might find ourselves in that situation. When we look back with a bit of nostalgia, maybe a bit of shame to our spiritual mountaintops and those great promises we made, but thankfully, that's not the end of the story for Peter. Our reading picked up the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus and Peter talk together. Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus asks again. I feel like when you look at the Greek of this text, it helps us to understand what was really going on. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the word for love that's used is agape. Agape love is a selfless love, a love when you sacrifice everything. We saw that agape love. 
when Jesus died for us on the cross. Peter, do you agape love me? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. But the word he uses for love is philos love, the love that we have for a friend. Jesus is like, oh, okay. <laughs> Peter, do you agape love me? Yes, Jesus, I philos love you. And a third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you philos love me? And Peter can say back, yes, Lord, I do, Philos, love you. And the Lord says to Peter, then feed my sheep. And then he goes on to tell Peter about what a life following him would look like, about his eventual sad and difficult death. Was it not a great life that Peter lived? Peter ends up in Acts 2 being the powerful explainer of what happens at Pentecost. In Acts 3, he heals a crippled man who doesn't have, he heals a crippled man. Peter becomes a man upon whom Jesus builds his church. So, we here may want to be Christ followers, and we may look to Peter's story with solace, we know that to say that Jesus is Lord requires something from us. And so, how should we respond? I'm reminded by a German theologian called Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace, he says, is a grace without price. With cheap grace, we say, you know, everything was paid in advance. And because everything's paid for, we can just get whatever we want for nothing. We can have forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipleship and church discipline, communion without confession. It could be easy for us to look at the story of Peter and say, Peter was a bit of a mess up and look how God used him. I'll be a bit of a mess up and God will use me too. But there's something about that that jars me doesn't really make sense of this Jesus who we've read in the, in the Gospel of John that calls people to come and see and calls them to follow. That call of Jesus sounds a lot more like costly grace. We see costly grace in the relationship between Jesus and Peter. This is costly grace because it costs us everything. It costs us our life to follow Jesus. Peter, in following Jesus, knew he was committing to live a difficult life and have a difficult death. But it's grace nonetheless because we're called to follow Jesus. We're called to follow the God incarnate who became like us, who bore our sin. We're called to follow the man who we know will ultimately give us full satisfaction. It's because Jesus, God, became human like us because he died for us that we now have a chance to strive to become like him. I've always said that the two things that really strike me in the Gospel of John is this call to come and see and this command to follow. Come and see, the Gospel saying. Come and see that God is good. Come and see his grace and mercy and love. And then follow. Follow the God who is creator, redeemer, and sustainer. 
Follow the God who we know will ultimately fulfill our most base needs. For those of us here today who consider ourselves to be Christian, we might have stories of times when we felt like God has called us to come and see. Maybe at a big Christian festival, maybe at our baptism, maybe at the beginning of Lent. We'd also have times when we would have made big promises to God, times when we would have felt embarrassed by the way we acted, Promise, times where we could have felt overwhelmed. But despite all of those things, we know that Jesus, the Lord, the creator God, is calling us. And he's saying, do you love me? And if so, feed my sheep. I wonder what that call means to you today. Amen. Thank you, Zoe. Let's just take a moment of quiet to pray and to reflect. In a moment, Sarah and Ruth are going to lead us in a 